Let me just say before um, we get to our passage this morning, um, and the announcements, the uh, grill and chill on the 24th, I believe, um, you may have noticed in there that there are water games. Um, those are for the kids, so don't be scared. Um, no one is going to attack you with a super soaker or a water balloon or anything like that. You, you can, if you would like to participate in that, you're welcome to do that, but it will not be required of you. So um, just to allay any fears there uh, that you may have about that. Um, so you can open up to Romans chapter 12. We'll get there a little bit later. Um, but I'm sure you've wondered in your life before, when you look at successful or very skilled people, someone who is world-class in a particular skill, someone who is incredibly successful, I'm sure we've all wondered at different times, what, what led to that? How did that person get there? I've, I read a, a book a few years ago that the entire book dealt with that question, um, what made very skilled, very successful people successful? And the guy that wrote it gave a variety of answers because it's not just one characteristic. Some of it depends on the amount of money that you're, you were born into. Um, that has a, an amazing effect on whether you are able to develop certain skills or whether you're able to be successful. Uh, it does depend on the family you're born into it. Some of it obviously depends on natural gifting and IQ level. Um, you can't teach some of those things. And some of it even depends on when you were born. You're more likely to be a professional hockey player if you're born in January, February, or March. It's not, I'm not kidding. That's true. Um, all the guys that made a ton of money on computers were born within a few years of each other in the mid-1950s. And so it just makes a difference on when you were born. But regardless of those characteristics of those who are successful or highly skilled in a particular area, there's one thing that all of these people had in common. All of them, everyone who reaches that level of success, at least that this guy was talking about in his book, has worked very, very hard to hone their abilities and to cultivate a set of skills to get there. From Bill Gates learning computer programming when he was younger and he worked very, very hard at it, to the Beatles playing together as a band over and over and over again and becoming very good at live performances. All of the people who reach a certain level of skill and success, who master their skill, work at it. It takes time and it takes effort. And in this book, it was very interesting, the author said that for someone to reach mastery at a particular skill, to be a world-class practitioner of that skill, he thinks they have to put 10,000 hours in, in cultivating that skill. And so if you're not good at math, like I'm not, that would be 20 hours a week for 10 years in one particular area cultivating that skill. And so the bottom line is you can have all the natural gifting in the world, you can be born at the right time to the right parents, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna master that skill or become successful. It takes training, and it takes work to get there. Now I'm telling you that because that has profound, a profound impact on what we've been talking about concerning fighting sin. We've been talking the last few weeks about fighting sin personally. What strategies do we need to employ in our own personal lives to fight against sin? 
And we've given you three of those strategies so far. They're listed here on the screen. Be who you are. Cultivate your identity in Christ. Expose the lies of sin. Recognize that sin is always lying to you. It's never up front. It's never telling you the truth. It's always lying to you. And then, as a counter to exposing the lies of sin, cultivate a new affection for Jesus Christ. Hold him up in your heart as glorious and magnificent and as the one who has saved you and cultivate a new affection. And that new affection will replace the old desires and the old affection. And so all of these are obviously true, but here's the bottom line for us this morning. It takes effort to make this happen. You don't fight sin by just sitting there. It doesn't work that way. It takes work. And it's not legalistic to say that. That's not what I'm going for this morning. There has to come a point for each of us where we see sin as nasty enough and we see Christ as glorious enough and the value system is there where we say, okay, I will do what it takes in my life to pursue Christ and to put sin to death. I'm going to pursue holiness with everything that I have because it's worth it. I mean, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. That's language of, of effort, isn't it? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It starts with his grace, the fact that he has called me and saved me, but in response to that, I give it everything I have. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is why our last strategy for a personal fight against sin this morning is this, pursue, pursue Christ-like character. Pursue Christ-like character. So as we get into this this morning, and, and you look back at these first three parts, these first three strategies um, of, of what we're doing, we're not going to leave those things behind. We're going to actually enhance those with pursuing. And as we do this, we're going to basically take this morning in three chunks. We're going to divide this last strategy up into three different parts, and each of them is going to be one of these words, pursue, and then Christ-like, and then character. And then we're going to put all those together, and hopefully we'll understand exactly what we're talking about this morning. So let's start with that first word, pursue. Pursue. Pursuing doesn't mean we're leaving behind the three previous weeks. We're not leaving behind the work of Christ. The only way you and I are able to fight sin, the only way we're able to pursue, is because of the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I mean, you remember the first week, that's the starting point. You have to be changed. You have to be freed from sin. You were enslaved, and through Christ, if you've been saved, you have been freed from sin. It no longer has dominion over you, so now be who you are. But that takes effort. And we're not ditching the gospel this morning when we talk about effort. We're not moving from the work of God to our own abilities 
and our own goodness and our own efforts. I'm not trying to tell you this morning that if you'll just gut it out and work really, really hard, that you'll completely rid yourself of sin. That's not the direction we're going. And I think we struggle with this because sometimes I think that we understand grace to be the opposite of effort. We think grace is over here and effort is over here. And there are a number of reasons for that. Ephesians chapter 2, we, we think, I received salvation by grace through faith. And look what it says. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we hear this and we see that grace is not because of something I've done. And so then somehow we translate that to mean that grace is the opposite of effort. But that's not reality. There's a massive, massive difference between working to earn God's favor and working because I'm motivated by God's favor. There's a huge difference there. And I'll say it again so we can make it as clear as possible. There's a massive difference between working to earn God's favor and working because I'm motivated by God's favor. I mean, you can look at the very next verse. We're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, but Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace results in good works in our lives. When we're truly saved by grace, by the gift of God, we're so overwhelmed by that, we are so changed by that, that now we turn around and put all of our determination and all of our effort into pursuing the one who saved us by his grace. Paul describes this elsewhere, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Look at his command here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. What's he saying here? Be who you are. Realize your identity in Christ. Recognize your spiritual state. Expose the lies of sin. Learn to love Christ with all that you have. Work out your own salvation. This takes intentionality. It takes purpose. It takes effort on our part. But understand that as you are putting that effort in, that verse 13 is also true. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a wonderful combination here. As you're putting the effort in, as you're straining with everything you have to put sin to death and to grow in Christ-likeness, as you're doing that, it's actually God who's working in you, Paul says. And that's the amazing thing about grace. You are working with everything you have hard in pursuit of God, and then you turn around and you realize that the entire time God has been at work in you both to be motivated, to will, and to actually do the work, to actually perform the action. He's the one that has been at work in you to make sure that happens. And here's the reality of grace. Grace is not lazy. If you've truly been changed by God's grace, it's not lazy. Grace is not ambivalent about sin. It's not careless. 
True grace is fanatical in its pursuit of Christ. And as it's fanatical, as you're pursuing, that pursuit is aimed in a particular direction. And that's the second part of this. Pursue Christ-likeness, we'll say. Pursue Christ-likeness. So all the work, all the effort that we put forth is aimed in a direction. It's aimed at Christ-likeness. Now, that rolls off our tongue so easily. I want to be like Christ. Why? Why Christ-likeness? Why Him? Why be like Him? And in order to understand that, let's start back in the Garden of Eden. This will be a quick trip, so don't worry. But in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve without sin, and God designed Adam and Eve to live in a certain way. There's a a grain with which they were to live. They're to live in loving relationship with God and loving relationship with one another, and they were to reflect God. They were to image him. Remember that from our Genesis series? They were to image God and reflect him as they ruled over creation. So loving relationship with God, with one another, and then rule over creation by reflecting God and representing him in the world. And as they did this, it was like a round peg going in a round hole. It's, it's the way it was meant to be. It's the way they were designed to live. It, it works. There's a, a suitability to this, an appropriateness to how they were designed to live and who they were designed to be. And you know the story. Instead of being that round peg in the round hole, instead of living as God designed them to be, they decided they wanted to be a square peg in a round hole, and they wanted to choose how they wanted to live. And so God's design was violated, and they were tragically broken. And after they were broken, they could no longer be that round peg in the round hole. They couldn't live as God designed human beings to live. And if you want to know how God designed human beings to live, look at Jesus. He comes according to God's plan, and he was that round peg in the round hole. He is exactly how human beings were designed to live. And how do we know that? Well, listen to this from Colossians 3. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, which the next verse goes on to identify as Jesus Christ. So we are to look like Christ because he is the true image of God. He's exactly what Adam and Eve were supposed to be, what they were designed to be. Jesus truly reflects God in his humanity the way that we were all supposed to. And so what this means for us is, is it means that Jesus is the goal. He's not only the means of our salvation, he is the goal of our salvation. He's the end goal of our pursuit of holiness. He's what we're aiming for. He lived the way God designed humans to live, and now he's what we're aiming at. We want to be like him. Ephesians 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, this is what we're aiming at, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
We want to look like him. He is the restoration of God's original design. And so when, when we become all that we were intended to be, it will be to look like Jesus Christ. So all of our effort goes into looking like Christ. Now, you know that, and that's a very common way of talking about sanctification and about holiness, but what exactly does that mean? What does Jesus actually look like? Where does our effort go? We want to look like him. That's the end game. That's the big picture. But what does our effort look like? That's our third part of this. We pursue Christ-like character. Now, you don't probably hear that word character a lot, but I like that word. I know it's kind of an old word, but I like it. I think it speaks to what, we're, what we want to describe here. We're not just talking about a few actions that resemble Jesus. Your character is all that you are as a person. It's the sum total of your characteristics, all the little features of who you are and your desires and your wants and your goals and your ambitions. Your character is your characteristics in total. And so to pursue Christ-like character doesn't just mean that some of our actions from day to day change. They will change, but this is something much deeper than that. Pursuing Christ-like character means that we literally become different people. Everything about us changes. We put on new characteristics, new qualities, new attributes. Everything about us changes, so now we reflect Jesus. We look like him and who we are at the most basic level. So we're not just talking about actions. We are, but we're talking about thoughts. We're talking about thought patterns, the grooves in your mind in which you think. We're talking about our loves, our passions, our desires, our reactions to things. Reactions that we don't think we can control. Oh, it just came out of me. It came out of you because that's who you are at the deepest level. And that has to change too. Our values, everything about us becomes more like Jesus Christ. Pursuing Christ-like character means strangling the old self and putting on the new self in all of life, in every area. But I think so often, I don't think about the goal of the Christian life as putting on the new self. Instead, I think a lot of us tend to think that really what we're trying to do in the Christian life is we're trying to avoid breaking some rules. That's, that's really what we're after. If I can just not break these commands, if I can just avoid breaking these rules, then I've been pretty successful this week. And in reality, you're just making it a rules-based faith. Everything becomes about the rules. We find purpose and meaning in those prohibitions. And so we tend to think about the Christian life in terms of what we can and can't do. And that's inadequate. That's not what sanctification is about. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you are a youth soccer coach. My kids are young, they have played soccer, I have coached their soccer teams before. 
So imagine you're coaching six to seven-year-olds. Some of you, I've, I've just lost you. You have no category for doing that, but try to track with me here a little bit, all right? That's the most terrifying reality in the world to you, coaching six and seven-year-olds in soccer. But imagine that you're coaching six and seven-year-olds. They've never played soccer before. And so you go out on the first day of practice and you say to them and their parents, I am going to teach your kids how to play soccer. Great. Then you say to the kids, don't kick the ball out of bounds, don't touch the ball with your hands, and don't tackle other kids. Those are the rules. Okay, let's play. You guys are ready. You know how to play soccer now. Then they're doing whatever they're doing with the ball, kicking it around, and you keep telling them throughout the entire practice, don't kick the ball out of bounds, don't touch the ball with your hands, don't, don't tackle each other, don't punch each other. And all you do the entire hour of practice is you tell them what they can't do. You emphasize the rules. Most of the kids would probably give up pretty quickly. That would be frustrating. But at the end of the season, even after you play games, they're not going to be any better soccer players. They're not really going to have developed any ability there. Instead, what do you, what do, you do to develop soccer players? You want them, the goal is for those kids to acquire the skills that they need so that they can respond naturally in a game situation with the skills that they've acquired so they know exactly what to do in a variety of situations. You never know exactly what's going to happen in a soccer game. You don't know which direction the ball's going to come from. But when you have mastered these skills, now you can actually play the game. The kids know they can't touch the ball with their hands. They all know that. But most of the practice time that you spend with them is you spend it doing drills. You spend it training them. You, you tell them to pass. You tell them to trap the ball. You tell them to shoot on the goal. You tell them to run back and forth. They dribble it. All of those things are training and acquiring skills so that they can be positive Soccer players, they know what to do. And I think that is exactly how we need to think of the Christian life. It's not just avoiding breaking certain commandments. Those are important, and they are there for a reason. And I think even the commandments in Scripture are there to help train us to be who we are. But ultimately, the goal is a life of Christ-like character. And the means of reaching that goal is not just avoiding breaking commandments. The means of reaching that goal is the positive acquisition of Christ-like characteristics, of Christ-like, I'm going to use the word virtues here. And over time, as you acquire those characteristics and those virtues, you become more like Jesus Christ, you resemble him, and maybe without you even knowing it, your responses, your loves, your desires, your affections are more like Christ. And in a year or two, you've become a completely different person. You're not perfect. You don't always make the pass correctly. But you're years ahead of where you were, and it's more naturally who you are now. Now, I use the word virtue, and if you know me at all, you know I love that word, and I think it's super helpful for what we're going for here. A virtue of character 
is like a skill for a soccer player in the illustration I just gave. If you can pass the ball correctly with the right part of your foot, you can duplicate that in a number of circumstances in the game. And if you have a virtue as a Christian, the virtue of gentleness, then you will be able to showcase that in a variety of circumstances because it's a part of who you are. It is a skill that you have acquired through a number of different means, which we'll talk about in a minute. Here's how one author defined virtue. Virtue is an enduring pattern of feeling and thought, choice and action and perception. Now, let's think about this for a second here, okay? He describes a virtue as an enduring pattern. I think maybe a word that would be clearer to us is habit. It's a habit. We all think of habits as something we do over and over again, don't we? I brush my teeth in the morning and in the evening. It's an action that I do, and it's become second nature to me. But habits also form not just in your actions, but in your feelings, in your thoughts, and even in your perceptions of the world. And I think this is starting to get us really to the core of what it means to become like Jesus Christ. Certainly we do things that are like Christ, but we largely do those things because our feelings, our thoughts, our choices, and our perceptions have been changed. Christ's likeness extends to all of those areas, not just what would Jesus do. It's so much more than that. It's a complete change of who you are. And when you are changed at this level with virtues, characteristics, enduring patterns of thinking and feeling, these things become who you are and they are more permanent. One Puritan put it this way, and I thought this would be helpful. I'll read it to you. The blush, so the blush of godliness, something that's merely on the outward, the external. The blush of godliness is not enough to distinguish a Christian, but godliness must be the temper and complexion of the soul. Godliness is a fixed thing. There's a great deal of difference between a stake in the hedge and a tree in the garden. A stake rots and molders, but a tree having life in it abides and flourishes. When godliness has taken root in the soul, it abides to eternity. His seed remaineth in him, 1 John. And I love this. Godliness being engraved in the heart by the Holy Ghost, as with the point of a diamond, can never be erased. So, our faith is not just about avoiding sin. We do want to avoid sin. We want to fight sin. That's what this whole series is about. It's about fighting sin. But to really fight sin at the deepest level, we have to become who we are in Christ by positively growing in these character qualities. Now, as you're listening to this, maybe you're thinking, okay, that sounds great, but I need some specific direction. What does this look like? How how do I do this? How do I grow in these areas? What sort of virtues am I to grow in? It's nice to say, look like Jesus. Be formed in the image of Christ. Those are nice things to say, and they're biblical things to say, but what does that practically mean? 
Well, obviously, to uncover what it looks like to look like Jesus, you go to the Gospels, certainly, and the epistles of Paul are a great place to go. But I want to direct your attention this morning to just three passages. You can turn there if you want. We won't be reading through all of these, but three passages that you can go to and dive into to begin developing a sense of what Jesus actually looked like. What does it really mean to put on Christ-like virtues? There are three places that would be great places for your meditation and your study. The first one of those, they're not on the screen here, but the first one of those is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's near and dear to me. I've spent a lot of time in it. But the Sermon on the Mount, the basic idea of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is teaching his followers how to live well by growing in virtues of righteousness. I mean, that's what the whole thing is. What does a disciple look like? He looks like Jesus, and this is what Jesus looks like in his life. Grow in these character qualities. The sermon teaches us how to be whole, Perfect, not without sin, but whole or complete. To be as we were designed to be. And so the sermon touches all sorts of areas of life. I mean, if you've, if you've read it recently, you know this. But it talks about marriage, money, anxiety, interpersonal relationships. And that's just scratching the surface of what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest collection of ethical instructions in the history of the world. And that's not only Christians saying that, although if you're an unbeliever, you really don't know what's happening because you can only grow in these virtues as you're connected to Jesus Christ. But the goal of the sermon is to form followers into the image of Jesus Christ. So read the sermon, understand the sermon, meditate on what's being taught in the Sermon on the Mount grow in those qualities that are described there. The second place I would encourage you to go is Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that this is the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, these are the qualities, right? These are the qualities that we are to grow in. We are to put on these characteristics. We can walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit. We can develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I'm not going to read the fruit to you because I think it's very familiar to you. But one author, Tim Keller, said this about... Oops, I didn't change the, didn't change the, uh, the quote there. I'll just give it to you. The Spirit-fueled development of Christ-like character here in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is liberating because it brings us closer to being the people we were designed to be. You hear that? The fruit of the Spirit growing in these qualities brings us closer to being the people we were designed to be, the people our Spirit-renewed hearts want us to be. I mean, what he's saying is, look, we as believers want to be like Christ, we want to grow in holiness. Here are the qualities to grow in by the work of the Spirit in us. And then the last passage I would tell you to go to is in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. So the Sermon on the Mount, Galatians 5, and then Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. And Colossians 3, 1 to 17 is a fantastic passage for this because in verses 1 to 4, you've got the objective reality of our union with Christ. We are united to him. We are connected to him. We are saved by his work. 
And then if you're with me in Colossians 3, verse 5, because of our union with Christ, he says, put to death, therefore. So kill sin, aggressively go after sin. And then if you get down to verse 12, put on, therefore, Christ as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you know, compassionate hearts, kindness. And he goes through all of these qualities there. Really, Colossians 3 is everything we've been talking about in this series. Beginning with the work of Christ, fight sin, expose the lies of sin, put on Christ-like character and Christ-like virtue. So spend some time in those three passages to see what Christ-likeness looks like. But this morning, I want to end by going to Romans chapter 12, and I want to just give you some initial instruction on how to begin this process of cultivating these qualities and these virtues. So flip over to Romans chapter 12. Now, I know this is a very familiar passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You're very familiar with it. And you know, if you studied your Bible, that verses 1 and 2 are tied together. But I want to skip verse 1. <laughs> and I want to go right to verse 2. And his instructions in verse 2, I think, give us the really practical nuts and bolts of what we have to do, where our effort has to be aimed in order to change and in order to grow. I think that's what he's telling us here. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. So that's the starting point, right? Don't be conformed to this world. This is, this is an ever-present and very subtle reality and danger for us. The world is trying to shape us and trying to form us and trying to change us. Think of a, an assembly line where you've got little plastic toys being made and they all look the same. They're all conformed to a particular mold. And the machine that is creating those is stamping them and shaping them and conforming them to look a particular way. And that's exactly what the world system around us is trying to do to us all the time. Conform us to its way of thinking and loving and feeling and valuing. You may not even realize it's going on. But the opposite of being conformed, what we do in response to this attempt to conform us, verse 2, but be transformed. The idea here is from the inside out, the essential element of who we are breaks the mold that the world is trying to force on us and we become something different. Virtues are developed. Christ-like qualities come to the surface. New, different patterns of thought and of action and perception take control of who we are. So we don't want to be conformed. We want to be transformed, but how? How are we transformed? Verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. When Paul talks here about the renewal of our mind, he's not just saying think about different things, although that's a part of it. What he's saying here is that our entire disposition, 
Our entire way of seeing the world must be fundamentally altered. He's telling you here, you need new lenses for your glasses. The way you perceive people and culture and sin and everything has to be changed. It must be different. There have to be new lenses. Well, what are the lenses? What what shapes and forms how we see things now? Well, to answer that question, you have to go back to verse 1. We can't completely ignore it. And he says to you there, I appeal to you, therefore. So what he's teaching in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 is based on what comes before it. Now, we have a tendency here to think, okay, this is all of the book of Romans up to this point. And that's true. He is basing this on the gospel that he's given us in chapters 1 to 12. But sometimes that's really hard to get our arms around. And so I want to just look at verse 36 of chapter 11. It comes right before the therefore. So what does he say here? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the new lens. Everything comes from God. Everything is made through Him. And everything is ultimately going back to Him. It's all about Jesus Christ. This is the lens. He's the beginning. He's the sustaining power. He's the ultimate purpose. And now our minds are renewed as we begin to see this in every area of life. My job is given to me by God, and ultimately it is for Him. My family is a gracious gift of God, and they are given to me for a short time so that I can prepare them to go to Him. Everything runs through this lens, and our minds are renewed over and over again. This is not a one-time renewal. This is a daily process of renewing, Our minds are renewed as we come to grips with this reality. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And as that happens, new virtues develop, new grooves in our thinking and feeling and perceiving begin to take shape in our hearts and in our lives, and we become different people. And when you become a different person, there's a result. Look at the end of verse 2. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When you grow more and more Christ-like, when you put on these virtues, you will be equipped to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect in every area of life. What Paul, I think, is describing here, I think when he says to discern, you'll, you'll be able to test and discern. You'll be able to prove what is good. I think what he's describing here is he's describing a soccer player who has the skills and the ability to play the game in the game in a variety of situations. Things come up, and he's able to handle those. He knows what to do because he's acquired these skills. He's able to evaluate the situation, and based on his skills and his abilities and who he's become, now he's able to play in a certain way. He knows what to do because he has been trained. 
So often we boil making the right choices in life down to a moment-by-moment decision. And we think it all comes down to that moment-by-moment. Oh, what am I going to do in this circumstance? And in reality, I think what Paul's arguing here is by the daily renewal of our mind, by seeing things through a different lens, now we will know the right way to act. We will respond appropriately in this situation. We'll develop these virtues, we'll look more like Jesus, and in reality, this is what it's all about, acquiring these skills so that we can resemble him and look like him in everyday life. Renew your minds. I think that's the starting point for each of us. Begin here. Take on this perspective. Now, this brings us all the way back to the beginning. This doesn't come naturally, does it? It's easy to be conformed to the world. It's easy to float along and let the world shape how we see things. But it takes effort, intentionality to say, I'm not going to be conformed to the image of the world anymore. I'm going to be transformed by my mind being renewed so that I can acquire these qualities and I'll be able to discern the appropriate and the right thing to do in each and every area of life. This requires grace-empowered effort. It requires us to pursue Christ-like character. Let's pray. Father, we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to grow in these areas. And we know we need you to do the work in us. We are so weak. We come up so short all the time. We need your motivation. We need you to empower us. We need your Holy Spirit to change us. And that's what we're asking for this morning, Lord. I pray that something that has come out of this sermon today would would influence someone here to say, Christ is worth it. Sin is reprehensible. I don't want it anymore. I want Christ, and I'm going to begin today the process of having my mind renewed by the Scriptures and renewed by the Gospel. And I pray that they would It would make that first intentional step toward this today, Father. Give us the grace that we need to do that, because ultimately we look back and see that you were the one working in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. And that's where it all ends anyway, Father. We want you to be honored and glorified as we grow and resemble your son more and more. Thank you for what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.